0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Rev. Dave Kiefer. Well, good evening. We've been walking through uh, Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ. And we're in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus teaches his followers how to pray. Uh, today, we call this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. And chances are you first heard this prayer when you were a child, even if you didn't grow up in a religious environment or in a church. Now, if you're like me, you learned the, the Lord's Prayer in Old English, right? King James English, which tended to complicate it tended, tended to complicate things for you as a child. I know it did for me. I was very confused. I didn't understand what "thy" meant or what "art" meant. That "art" meant "is," and so when I I prayed, "Our Father, whose art is in heaven," I thought I was. Praying to God who had picture frames hung all around heaven. Maybe picture frames of those that I loved. And and the Old English gave it a very formal sound. Probably more formal than, than Jesus intended. For the language is very familial. Did you have the same type of uh, early interaction with the Lord's Prayer? It's something that many of us have said over and over again. but But this evening... We want to dig in and really reflect, what what does it mean? What is it that Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer? And so we pick up in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And uh, here we have in verse 1 that Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Notice it was through observing Jesus praying that motivated the disciples to ask him to teach them to pray. That Jesus and his prayer life had the disciples in all. Now, it's common for rabbis, right, to teach their followers how to pray. But the disciples here were asking because they had observed all through his life that he was a man of prayer. And we've seen that through the Gospel of Luke. That Jesus would get up early to pray. People would look around. Jesus, where did he go? And he's up early. He's praying. And he's, he's on the mountain in Luke 6 praying before he chooses his disciples. He prayed early and often. Prayer saturated everything he did. And if that teaches us anything, is that if Jesus needed to pray, we certainly need to pray. It reminds us of the importance of prayer now, I want that to sink in as we begin to discuss the Lord's Prayer, that, that praying is just as important as doing. Praying is just as important as doing. Now, before I continue to read Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, you may notice as I'm reading it, it's it sounds a bit strange because there are actually two versions given to us in the Gospel accounts of the Lord's Prayer And the more well-known version that we all have memorized comes from Matthew's gospel. But the one in Luke is a little bit shorter, and it sounds a little bit different. Picking up in verse 2, Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we, ourselves, forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Sounds a little bit different than the one you memorized, doesn't it? Uh, Matthew's version has six petitions, three that are about God, and three that are about relationships, human relationships, and about man. Luke's version has five petitions in total, three about God, or... Godward oriented and three manward oriented. Now, one thing that might surpri- be a bit surprising to everyone here is that the way the Lord's Prayer ends, neither version, either in Matthew or Luke, includes the famous doxology, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That was taken from ancient prayers in the Old Testament, from King David's prayer in 2 Chronicles 29. It was practiced by the early church, and so it It certainly fits there, and it fits within the broader patterns of biblical prayer, but it was not in either of the gospel narratives. So how do we make sense of the fact that there's two versions of the Lord's Prayer? Some people, you know, at least me, when I first discovered this several years back, I'm like, well, which one's the real one? I want to get it right. Others may begin to worry that the differences must mean that there are errors or contradictions in the Bible But we need not be troubled. I think you picked up on it. And we were reading these two versions. While there are some differences, the prayer is essentially the same in both Gospels. And the reason for the differences is because Jesus is teaching uh, people how to pray on two different occasions. And, And good teachers, right, they always repeat themselves. And they rarely say the same thing twice in exactly the same way. Sometimes they expand on ideas. Sometimes they summarize ideas. It all depends on the situation and who they're speaking to. So in Matthew's version, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer when he's in Galilee, and it's embedded in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. But here in Luke's version, Jesus is teaching his prayer much later in his ministry when he's on the way to Jerusalem, and he's stopped by disciples who feel like they're missing out on something about prayer. And so he... Reminds them no this is what i've been telling you all along and he gives them a briefer form of the same prayer He had once taught the crowds on the sermon on the mount Now knowing the differences between these two versions of the lord's prayer. It's actually quite helpful Phil reichen says it this way the the variations between matthew and luke show us that jesus was giving us a normative pattern for prayer Not a rigid form the lord's prayer is a model not a mantra. The important thing is not using the exact words that Jesus uttered, but following the same structure and incorporating the same themes into our own prayer life. And see, the general pattern is evident in both versions. And the prayer, like I said, it, it's it's divided into two movements. The first movement is Godward, and the second movement is, is horizontal toward our relationships with the world and others. So let's 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 walk through it. First, the vertical movement. There's a preface in this vertical Godward movement and there's two petitions. The preface is Father, and the two petitions are one, hallowed be your name, and your kingdom come. Now Matthew expands on that second one with a third petition, your will be done, which actually explains the second petition. Let's walk through it. Jesus first encourages his followers to approach God as their father, as beloved children. Now, this is remarkable that Jesus wants us to approach God with the same sense of confidence and expectation of welcome as a young child would approach a loving human father. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't connect with everyone in our world. I I work in campus ministry and When you work with young college students, that's the first time in life they get away from home, and sometimes home was not a good place to be. It was a dangerous place, an abusive place. It was very common for Marty and I to work with college students who were just beginning to realize how broken home was and how abusive it was. And so when they would read the Bible about God being a father, it it didn't connect to them. And one of the things that, that they often needed before it would connect was to be welcomed into homes where they, they saw a healthy relationship, where children delighted and were excited to see dad, and where, where dad cherished his children. And those of you who grew up in homes like that, maybe it's easier for you to make that connection, but even with earthly fathers, you know, how, no matter how great they are, and you can ask my kids, I'm a pretty great dad, but you know... You disappoint your kids and you frustrate them and you fail them. And, and that's why the second way and, and the ultimate way we correct our view of fatherhood is, is we look to God's revealed word, for in it, God presents himself as the perfect, loving father who really cares for his children. And seeks to know them and walk intimately with them. And he knows what's best for his children. And he gives them what's best, even if they don't want it or think they need it. But it's best because he loves them and he disciplines their, his children out of love. And so this is how Jesus encourages us to come to our father when we pray, to approach him as a beloved child. And, it, and this posture, it impacts and directs every other part of the prayer So that when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're not just saying this to some strange, majestic God that's a force, but as a hallowed be your name as my father. Thy kingdom come, not just as a king with riches, but as the king who is my dad, and I am a royal child. When we say, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking our father to provide for our needs. When we say, forgive us our sins, we're not just asking for some strange God to forgive our sins, but for our Father to show mercy. When we ask God to deliver us from evil, we're asking for a Father's protection and guidance. After the preface, he moves on to the Godward petition, hallowed be thy name. Now that's one of those fancy old English words which simply means holy. In modern English, we might say glory or honored or highly valued and supreme is your name now what does it mean to lift up someone's name that doesn't mean just to lift up you know the letters that make the word ask anyone who wants to be famous why do they want their name written in lights is it just letters is it just the word no that that's them that's their identity that's who they are because your name is you and so when we say hallowed be your name we're saying God, your name be lifted up. You be made great. We're acknowledging God's character. We're saying, God, you are holy. Now, we're not praying, God, be more holy each and every day. Grow in holiness for God is already perfectly holy and and heaven can't contain his glory. What we're actually praying is, God, help us to see your glory. Let us recognize it and acknowledge it and revel in it and celebrate it. Help us to honor you for who you really are and to see you more and more clearly in all of your glory and your love and your grace and your compassion. We want to pray to see God for who he really is. And this starts out by praying personally. Hallowed be your name. Help me to take delight in you. Let you be my greatest delight, but also to pray for our family and friends that our children, that our friends would find as their highest, highest delight, not Netflix, and not Skylanders, but the Lord. We pray for our church, our community, our leader, our leaders, our nation, our world, that all would come to love and serve and know God is the Holy One. So that's the first petition, to hold God's reputation high. The second is to hold up him as ruler, as the one who reigns. Your kingdom come. Now, what does that mean? God's kingdom is not limited to a nation or a region that you can point to on a map. Simply stated, this means that that God's kingdom is all about His sovereign rule. It's the administration of His authority, of His power over all of His creation. It's the way that God exercises his leadership, his justice, and his mercy over his creation, over his people, and even over his enemies. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're asking God to rule with his power in his way, not in our way. We're asking him to to rule in our lives and in our families' lives and in our nation's life. And like I said, Matthew's version expands the meaning by saying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is God's will done in heaven? It's done immediately. It's done joyfully. It's done without complaining or grumbling or without confusion. That's how God's will is done in heaven. And we're praying that that would be more and more characteristic of our personal world and our, our family life and our culture and our church. We're also praying that the, that the rule of God his justice and mercy would be seen more and more in our town in our cities in our classrooms that the innocent would be vindicated that the weak would be defended that strangers would become neighbors that enemies would be reconciled and become friends and brothers that children would be cherished and not neglected or abused that marriages would flourish and not not wither away with isolation, and alienation, and neglect, that businesses would prosper, and that authority figures would uphold all that is good, right, and true for God's glory. This is what we're praying when we pray, your kingdom come. And as the people of God, we're asking God to make our work as we participate in his kingdom, as his ambassadors, we're asking God to work through us and to make our work fruitful and effective. Now, the first movement, like I said, it's about God because our priority in prayer is to glorify God first and to bless his name, to recognize his sovereignty, to rest in his power and love. And we need to do that before we make our request because it's only as we, we understand who he is and we acknowledge this and we rest in his reputation and his rule and his character and his power do we have a basis for trusting in him And coming to him with our request. And believing that he'll do something about it. That he'll answer. That he's able and willing to respond. And so then we move into the second movement. Which goes horizontal. And there's three petitions here. The first is for daily provision. The second for daily pardon. And the third for daily protection. First. Give us each day our daily bread. Second. And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And third, lead us not into temptation. Verse 3, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily needs, not our every whim and desire. And while we can certainly pray for our desires, we have no promise or expectation that God's just going to give us whatever we want, whenever we want it. But he does promise to give us those things that we truly need. And Jesus is also teaching us to acknowledge our dependency on God. See, it's our nature. It's not just me. I know you. It's your nature too. To believe that you're self-sufficient, that you're self-reliant, that you can pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and move on. But this prayer teaches us not to take God for granted or what he provides we may work and make money and use that money to grow grocery sh- shopping and buy something as simple as food, but we are reminded, aren't we, when a pandemic hits and there's a run on food at the grocery store, just how dependent we are on things outside of ourselves. We live in a fragile world. We need a God of grace and mercy to sustain us lest we go hungry. And when we pray for our daily bread, we're not just acknowledging our dependency on God for food, but our dependency on God for all things, that we're dependent on him to keep our bodies healthy so that we can process that food and digest it and turn it into useful energy. But notice too, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray in the first person plural. He doesn't say, give me my day, my daily bread. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is reminding us not to pray selfishly, but to pray in community with others, to pray for their needs, to be alert to it, concerned about it, to pray with and for each other. That's the pattern that Jesus calls us to, to encourage one another as we go before God to say, what needs do you have that I can take before our Lord? And it's not just material needs that Jesus tells us to pray about but relational needs and spiritual needs right we pray for our daily bread but second we pray for daily pardon forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us jesus's prayer here plainly acknowledges that we need forgiveness we are sinners each and every one of us individually in our own right and as a community it only gets worse when you put sinners together And we must not allow our conscience to harden so that we become apathetic or indifferent or start to redefine what selfishness is or what sin is or what sexual immorality is or what pride is. We must let God's word define those things and remain soft to our moral failures and confess them and beg for forgiveness. For we need a God of mercy and grace every day. Now, Jesus makes a connection here, did you notice it? Between the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness we give. And it almost looks like he is saying that the forgiveness we receive is dependent upon or conditioned upon the forgiveness we give. But we must remember this is a communal prayer. And if we know the gospel, we know that there's nothing we can do to earn God's forgiveness. That's freely given to us through what Jesus did when he came and paid our debt in full on the cross. If we could earn our forgiveness, why in the world did Jesus come and hang on a cross and die to pay for our sins? But this is a communal prayer, so it's not a condition for forgiveness, but in reality, it's a proclamation. It asserts that we forgive people who owe us, that we are people who forgive those who are indebted to us. It's a petition that acknowledges sin, not just our own, but the sin of our community, the sin of others against us. That when others do us wrongly and they put themselves in our debt, that we will forgive. Just as we have put ourselves in God's debt and he has forgiven all of our sin against him. See, thankfully, in Christ Jesus, God has forgiven us all our sins if we accept that payment on our behalf. It was a costly sacrifice. And knowing that God acts first to forgive us, resting in that reality, it can't not change you. There's no such thing as non-transforming grace. Grace transforms. And when you have been forgiven radically and fully, and you understand that, and that sinks down into the nooks and crannies of your heart, It changes you and makes you into a forgiving and gracious person. Not perfectly, but it really does begin to reorient your heart and your life. The simple fact is the children of God forgive debtors. The simple fact is forgiven sinners forgive. And if we are not willing to forgive others or who have never forgiven others, we must ask do we truly understand the forgiveness we've been granted in Christ? Because as we do, we will have all the resources we need to forgive others. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to forgive. Of course it's not. It wasn't easy for God to forgive us. Look at how costly it was for Jesus. It is hard. Forgiveness is hard work. It took Jesus dying on a cross, but it is possible. And if you know Jesus' forgiveness toward you, it's not only possible. It's a necessary, essential reality to being connected to him. For his spirit lives in you. And that same power that enabled Christ to forgive you, that power of his spirit lives in you, empowering you to forgive others. Now, one of the reasons we know it's not easy is because he says pray for it and pray with others. <laughs> Which means as we're praying for others and praying for ourselves, we're recognizing as a community, this is hard. And so as we pray together, forgive us our sins as we forgive one another's. That's meant to prick our conscience that if tonight... There's anyone here that you are not reconciled with? Tonight is the night to begin to work toward reconciliation. To not give up on that. The spirit of the Lord asks us to pray this. And the power of the Lord guarantees that he will bring it to completion. Now just like we're dependent on God for food, that doesn't mean we don't do any work. (laughs) Right? We're dependent... On God to bring the harvest, but we still must plant the seeds. And in the same way, you must do the work of forgiveness by planting the seeds, trusting the Spirit of God to work in your heart to bear the harvest of forgiveness, freedom from resentment and bitterness. This is what God wants for all of us, and it is good. And we're called to pray for it for ourselves. For our loved ones, if you know someone who is, who's just debilitated with bitterness, pray for them. They're in your family. They're in your small group. Daily provision, daily pardon, and last, Jesus calls us to, to pray for daily protection. And lead us not into temptation. Now, Jesus is not saying that Jesus is ever capable of tempting us, right? The scriptures are clear. God does not tempt us. God cannot be tempted with evil. And he does not tempt anyone, as it says in James. Rather, this prayer is, is more of a humble admission that if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we, we actually look for temptation. <laughs> we, we want to be tempted. We want to be seduced, right? Advertisers know this. That's why they advertise the way they do. We all know this. Rather, this prayer, it's a humble admission that sometimes we can't be trusted. We don't trust ourselves. It's safer. God, protect us. Keep us from temptation. Now, God sometimes allows us to be tempted by the world, by by Satan, and by our own flesh. But he promises that when we are tempted to provide a way out and to strengthen us so that we do not need to sin. Matthew's version clarifies what he means here when he says, deliver us from evil. There is real evil in the world, evil that corrupts the heart, the soul, the body. Evil that is temporarily alluring, boy, does it look good. Temporarily gratifying, boy, does it feel good. And yet ultimately, addictive and destructive, alienating and disintegrating. And Jesus commends us to admit the reality of this, that there's no need to be prideful. We are all tempted. There's no temptation that has overcome you except what is common to man. Teenagers, I want you to hear this. Whatever you're wrestling with, mom and dad wrestled with. And if they haven't talked to you about it, ask them. No temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man. And so Jesus commends us to pray with this humility to ask him to strengthen us when temptation comes, to give us a way out or to keep us from it, to deliver us from its trap. So there we have it, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray as a pattern, right? This is a model, not a mantra. From it, we learn to begin our prayer with praise to God, praising him for his reputation and his character, praising him for his rule before we turn to our own daily needs for provision, pardon, and protection. And as we pray this prayer, in a world that is secular and godless, we choose to give God glory. In a culture that promotes its own agenda, we are choosing, as we pray this, to align with God's kingdom. In a culture that asserts independence, we are choosing to remind ourselves we are dependent on God. He is our provider and protector. And in a cancel culture of self-righteousness that refuses to talk to anyone you disagree with or regard as too dumb to view things your way, we ask God for daily forgiveness. We humble ourselves. We forgive others. We don't cancel others. But we offer forgiveness. And in a culture that feeds temptations and thrives on seduction and uses it to manipulate people, we pray for God's protection. But there's more going on here than just a prayer that realigns our heart. And it's more than just a countercultural prayer. This is a life-giving prayer for the one who taught us to pray this way secures for us all that we ask. Jesus is the answer to every petition. As I was preparing for this sermon, what's been so helpful for me is the Westminster Confession of Faith. I encourage you, go and read the larger and shorter catechism. The answers to what different petitions in the Lord's Prayer are just so helpful. Another thing that's been helpful to me is uh, Phil Riken's commentary on Luke and the Lord's Prayer. And, he, and, and Phil uh, Riken makes this, this point that Jesus is the answer to every prayer. We can pray, Father, because Jesus, the Son of God, has regarded you and I, who were strangers and aliens, as brothers. He came for us. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he has paid our adoption price so that we could be adopted into God's family. We pray, hallowed be your name. And when we look to Jesus, we have a sense of what that means. For in Jesus, we see a God who is glory. As we look at the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. And as we seek to know him and love him and be like him, we know what it means to glorify God's name. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we realize that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And he sits at the right hand of God and he's ruling on high. And as we speak his words and as we serve with his sacrificial love and as we represent him and as our hands do his work, as his body, we become like like salt that adds flavor to this world, that slows down the decay and that brings healing. We bring the kingdom of God with us as we serve this king. And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we remember... That man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. More so, we remember that Jesus said of himself, I'm the living bread who came down out of heaven. And that his flesh is true food. And when we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, we're reminded of the total, complete forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus, who paid all of our debts on the cross once and for all. He will never hold those things against us again. And that gives us the freedom to not only walk in forgiveness and the freedom it gives us, but to forgive others. And when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we pray to the one who stood against temptation, the onslaughts of temptation and never buckled, but overcame. He is for us, he is with us, and his spirit is in us. And so there's no need for us to be overcome by temptation. This is the Lord's prayer. And because he gives it to us, we can pray it confidently. And when we pray it confidently, we know it's a life-giving prayer for the one we pray to has secured every petition in it. And so this gives us great confidence as we learn to talk with God and as we learn to walk with him in this world. Let us pray. God, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for teaching us to pray. Father, we confess we're not very good at prayer. We are so good at thinking our own thoughts. We're really good at rumination, but we're not as good at intercession. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful and gracious God. We thank you that in the spirit, Christ is interceding for us at the right hand of the throne of God. And we thank you that he teaches us to pray. We thank you that we have a community where we can learn how to pray together and we can be with one another, pray for and with one another. And God, we pray that you would help us to pray this pattern of prayer in more consistent, more heartfelt, more regular ways, and that as we do, you would strengthen our relationship with you. And that you would strengthen us for your service in our family, at work, in our church, and in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.